Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Deepti Sharma, welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. For everyone listening, Deepti Sharma is the CEO and founder of Food to Eat, a community-minded catering concierge service started to connect immigrant women and minority-owned food vendors to opportunities for growth. So basically, helping them strengthen their own business skills while helping businesses feed employees with great food, build stronger and diverse work cultures. And as if that wasn't enough, Deepti is also the co-founder of Bicky, a platform solving customer engagement for restaurants, which Lord knows they need more than ever. Yeah. You are a mother, a small business owner. You come from a political background and you're super passionate about policies that support mothers and entrepreneurs. Deepti has served on the board for the Business Center for New Americans, a nonprofit that encourages immigrant entrepreneurship by supplying microloans and financial education. She also writes about how companies can modernize motherhood in the workplace and mentors female entrepreneurs as part of the New York City Mayor's We NYC initiative. Deepti, you're a World Economic Forum global shaper. You are a Forbes 30 under 30 alumni as well as being featured on Forbes Millennials on a Mission list. And you're a first-generation American, born and raised in Flushing, Queens. You are still living there. You work from there. You're running for New York City Council to represent Queens 24th District, which is incredible. And you really practice what you preach. So we'll start there because understanding that you're like a true New Yorker, but you are first-generation American. Mm -hmm. What was it like growing up for you? It was confusing, right? I mean, here I am, a first-generation American, trying to figure out my identity. I'm an Indian American, right? And I identify as both. But when I go back to India, a lot of people there, family members included, will say, but aren't you American? Like, you belong to that culture, you belong to that world. Yet when I'm here, I'm still fighting to even be seen as American because in a lot of people's eyes, as you and I both know, America is still being seen as majority white, even though it is a country built by immigrants. It's a mm -hmm. country in which we, you know, recognize and appreciate all the different cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities that make this country so great. And so it was a bit confusing because I felt like I had to try to be everything for everyone, right? And forgetting that it was more important to be 
who I need to be for myself? And is it important to embrace my Indian heritage? Is it important to understand what it means to be an American and to contribute to my community and what values are important to me? You know, it was always hard because I was always trying to figure out who do I need to be. Um, and it's not until my late 20s or my 30s where I realized I just need to be who I want to be, right? I need to be the best version of myself. And that best version is whatever I want it to be. And so I've tried, you know, in the last 10 years to mostly try to live for myself as opposed to mm -hmm. anyone else. But it's tough, right? When you're growing up, you always want to try to impress others because you're still figuring stuff out, especially as a teenager. Yeah, for sure. So I'm just curious because I also come from, you know, a European background of immigrants who came to America. And did you feel pressure from your parents to be a certain way or to do anything specifically? Or were you able to pursue whatever avenues that interested you? So my parents did have a big influence on, you know, what they expected of me, what they wanted from me, because again, as immigrants, a lot of times, you know, when they come to this country, they're scared to take risks. Um, interestingly enough, my dad was, uh, my mom and dad have both been entrepreneurs, but it was him who really encouraged the two of them to start a small business and really try to build something on their own. And that came from my grandfather who had built a tea business in India in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I think it was, before they came here. And so my dad wanted to take that risk of like doing that here, but he knew that it came with so many challenges. And so they didn't want that for me. So when I was younger, they had pushed me towards becoming a doctor or engineer because it was more stable, while a great career, um, while also be able to have a family life if I chose to. And so there was some sort of influence, but it was never forced down my throat. You know, and I was great at math and science, but I never found a career that like fit my personality, that fit what I really wanted to do. When I was in middle school, community service was a big part of our curriculum. And because of that, it became a part of who I was, right? So every week when I was in fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, we would spend time at a public school. And I was put into classrooms with kids with disabilities. And it was really hard to see kids suffering, right? At such a young age, they were preschoolers, they were having seizures in front of me. And that moment really changed me and the way I looked at my community and the way I wanted to contribute. And so I thought I need a career. If I'm going to do something in my life, I need a career that's going to allow me the ability to give back to my community as much as possible. And so I kept thinking about, well, my parents have always said being a doctor is great. You know, you're helping people, you're helping, you know, use medicine to help them survive and thrive and live. And so I thought that would be the path I would go down. And then the mere side of blood always freaked me out. So that was like, <laughs> that was definitely out. You know, STEM is never presented to young women as the path to like go down. It's never attractive to us because it's not presented to us. And like we weren't being shown role models, right? Yes, there were lots of women that were inventors and um, they were the first to fly and, and this and that and all those things. But there were so many things that weren't being shown to me. And so when I got to college, I kept thinking like, what do I love? I love history. I love law. And so I became a political science major in college. And it was just interesting because that was where I really felt like I could give back. So my first internship in college was for someone who was running for mayor in 2005. And that's where my love for politics came because I found a way to give back to my community, right? Help get someone I believed in at the time, get elected so that they could actually directly impact a community by, you know, talking about legislation that needs to get into place or talking about the issues that are really happening on the ground. And so that was my first way to like figure out how do I give back to my community? So 
I first did it through four years of college of studying it, but also working in it. And I'd interned my entire four years in political campaigns and a consulting firm. And that's where I like really picked up my passion to figure out what is my mission as a person and what do I want to do and how do I want to give back? You were so self-aware at a young age. I feel like college-age students don't think that way. So I commend you for that. Did you go to school in D.C.? No, I went to um, Stony Brook. So I've been a public school kid my entire life. And then I went to state school, which was great because that's what allowed me to actually like keep in touch with New York City politics. And then like, it's kind of crazy. I was taking a two hour train ride in and back from the city about like three days a week, which it's far. It's definitely far. And the interesting, it was for an unpaid internship at the time, (laughs) which which then I like finally said to them, like, listen, I'm spending a lot of time here. I'm doing a lot of work as equal to staffers. Like I do deserve to be paid. It's unfair that because I'm in college that you don't see me as someone fit, but I'm doing the work. So clearly I'm good enough for you to keep around. (laughs) Good for you. So when you graduated, what job did you go after? So when I graduated, it was 2008. It was a recession. And, you know, I'd kept applying for jobs, but nothing was like sticking. Nothing was, and again, like it was just impossible to get interviews. It was impossible to get a job because we were in the middle of a recession. But then I thought, well, what if I was to go to law school? That seems like the best natural next step, right? Go to law school, get a degree and go back into politics. So I was studying for my LSATs. I took my LSATs once. I never ended up going to law school because the things that were going through my head were, Um, you're graduating in a recession, you're going to go into school, you're going to come out with debt, Mm -hmm. you may or may not get a job because we don't know what recovery is going to look like. It was just a lot to kind of take in. And I didn't want to go to law school to become a lawyer. I wanted to go to law school for the education. And I thought, well, maybe I could do this further down the road, or I can, you know, think of another degree, like a public policy degree or something like that, and try something different. So Law school didn't end up being the place for me. But while I was studying for the LSATs and, you know, thinking about going, I found myself waiting online at a food truck and I waited for about 30 minutes and all I got was a peanut butter cookie. And I thought to myself, I literally just wasted time. I live in New York City in a place where there's food everywhere. There's great bakeries and like, you know, I didn't have to wait in this line, but, you know, I have a bad sweet tooth and I was just like, all right, I'm doing this. (laughs) Once I was like 10 minutes in, I was like, I'm committed. I'm like waiting. I'm not going to go back, right? Once 10 minutes pass, you're in. You're totally in. You're in. in. Um, But that experience was interesting, right? Because what I thought of was the only way to access food from this food truck is by waiting in line. And the only way to pay is by cash. And so I thought to myself, what if we change the way you access food trucks in New York City? So Food to Eat 1.0 was an online ordering platform for food trucks and carts in New York City. And when I started the company, I took a lot of time talking to food truck and cart owners. And I spent that time just trying to understand if they even wanted a platform, right? If they even wanted for people to place orders online and pay online, like, did they just want to stay this way? But the interesting things that I kept learning were that these food trucks and carts didn't even see themselves as small business owners. And that was alarming to me, right? Like they weren't naming their food carts. They all use the same stock images. So if you go down Park Avenue, you'll still see this today. They all have the same chicken and rice or falafel pictures. And I say, well, you literally serve it differently than the last person. Like you serve it with eggplant. That one serves it with black beans and corn. And it's pretty cool that you guys have your own unique take on falafel. Why wouldn't you market it, right? Like, and that is what you do. You talk about yourself, your brand, and they weren't doing that. And so 
I saw that as something that I wanted to help them change or at least help them to start thinking in that direction. You know, not to just use this as a job to pay bills, but use this as a way to scale yourself and to really grow as small business owners. And so that's what Food to Eat started off as, right? Is this place where I could teach these amazing business owners to really see themselves as business owners, to think about actually scaling, to not have to have second jobs in the winter because in the winter their lines decrease. And I said, well, if you don't want to use this during the summer, during your peak times, use this in the winter, right? And then you don't have to get a second job to pay your bills. Like you can stay here because people still love your food all year round, right? They're not going to stop. You're not selling ice cream. You're selling good, warm, hot food. And so that was like the first step to starting my first company is that how do I help these amazing people that came from similar backgrounds, right? They were immigrants, they were women, they were people from the countries that I'm from. And and so like, that's what was really important for me is to represent them because nobody was building tech for them, right? Nobody was approaching them. No one was thinking about them, period. No, no, not at all. So I'm just curious. So you would order it online and then obviously they'd give you some sort of number and you'd show up yeah. and pick it up. Interestingly enough, we went through a lot of, you know, kind of learning during that time. Uh, food trucks were a big deal. And, and so we launched the company in 2011, right? So I graduated in 2008. It took me time to kind of develop the idea. It took me time to actually talk to customers. I wasn't just talking to food trucks. I was also talking to restaurants because I wanted to build a platform that was bigger than just food trucks. And I realized that third-party services were a pain point for restaurants, right? So we wanted to help restaurants as well. So Food to Eat started with the process of talking to food trucks. We wanted to onboard restaurants. We wanted to provide more for customers. So customers were going through a lot of fun things at that time. Food trucks were a big deal. So they loved waiting in line. And I would say to them, you want to spend a majority of your lunchtime standing in this line instead of ordering. And so we were trying to kind of kick people out of these habits that they were so used to because they were like, well, this is a time I used to socialize. And I was like, well, Great. Socializing on the line. On the line, right? Because they like a group of them would go. It's such a New York thing, right? Like four or five people go together, they wait in line, they're talking, they're following up on office gossip. But people realize, right, like 90 degrees, like who wants to stand outside? And so we were really kind of changing people's habits. But what's also interesting is Mayor Bloomberg at the time had instilled a new rule where food trucks couldn't vend in certain parking spots. And that was affecting our business. So what was happening was food trucks were taking the risk of standing in a spot that they weren't supposed to, cops were kicking them out, and then a customer would come down and the food truck was gone because they didn't want to get a ticket. And so we had to just like kind of, we were just dealing with things that we didn't even think of, right? We didn't think that legislation would change and food trucks couldn't like park and vend in certain areas that were the busiest for them. And so that was interesting for us. And this is one of the few reasons why we, went into our initial pivot and like had to rethink our business model. But it was a number of things, right? So one was Mayor Bloomberg and these changes with food trucks and like this added variable where customers were getting irritated at us, not at the food truck, but at us because they were saying, well, why don't you update the system? And I was like, I can't if I don't know. One, two, you know, 2011, I am a woman of color who doesn't have a Ivy League degree, you know, didn't come from a big bank or consulting firm. I worked at a bunch of political campaigns and consulting firms, like a smaller one. Uh, Venture capitalists weren't familiar with that, right? They were very uncomfortable that I didn't have a track record that they were used to seeing, or I didn't look like them, right? And so you know the numbers for venture dollars, 2% of women get venture dollars. 
and black women are 0. 0.0006. And I fall somewhere in between those numbers. Mm-hmm. And so it was really hard to raise venture capital money, right? So I raised half a million from angels and family and friends that I was able to convince that like, hey, I'm building this really amazing company. I want you to buy in. I want you to invest in us. And that took me two years, whereas people were raising that within two weeks, right? So that was just really a hard place for us to be. So we entered a market, we're in the consumer world, and to be in the consumer tech world, you have to raise a certain amount to be able to compete. So we're entering this market, Seamless and Grubhub exist, they've been around for 10 years. Here we are, we realize that, you know, restaurants don't love Seamless and Grubhub because they're being charged up to 30% per order. And we're trying to educate the customer that like, hey, your convenience comes at a cost, you need to realize this, but they didn't care, right? Because 2011 was the world of Uber coming about where, you know, we want to get our food as quickly as possible, as easy as possible without having to talk to anybody. So people weren't paying attention to, you know, what that convenience was costing others. Even though we Mm -hmm. were telling them, I was like literally telling them, I was like, every single time you place an order for $10, the restaurant has to pay 30% of that. And if you know anything about restaurants, their profit margins are already slim. Yeah. And so what's interesting is that Here we are 10 years later, and it's taken a pandemic for people to realize how hard it is for restaurants to actually exist. And now people have been saying, like, you know what, I'm not going to order on Seamless. I'm going to call my restaurant. But I'm slowly seeing this trend again. And that was in March, April, May. People actually cared. But we're going back into convenience and people falling back into their habits of what's easiest for them because they're like, you know what, I need peace of mind. I don't need to talk to people. I'm on Zoom all day. I'm on calls all day. I don't care enough. So we were like going and this is again, 2011, 12, 13, 14, we spent like three, four years trying to keep convincing people and we had growth, right? I had made the Forbes 30 under 30 list because we had good amount of revenue. We had a lot of amazing things. We were the first movers in the food truck world. Um, you know, we were changing people's habits, but none of that is enough. If you do not have enough capital to compete with your competitors, right? It's, it's a lot to be able to do on your own. And and you don't have enough resources. So I went back to the drawing board and I said, I really want to keep helping these amazing vendors, right? And, you know, without even thinking, we were onboarding immigrant women, minority owned restaurants, mainly because that's who I am, right? So like, without thinking like, this is the core of our mission, we were just doing it because we saw them being taken advantage of. We saw big companies not building for them. And so we're like, we're going to do this. We're going to build for these people because nobody's ever built anything for food trucks. Nobody actually cares about restaurants. They're building for consumers. They're not building for the restaurants. And so we were going in with that mentality. And so I said to myself, I still want to stay in this world of helping immigrant women, minority owned restaurants and food trucks. How can I do something that adds value but not have to depend on a huge amount of capital that comes from outside. Mm-hmm. So we went through a pivot and that pivot came from us talking to a lot of our vendors and our restaurants and our food trucks. And I said, what is it that you need help with? And through a lot of the conversations, I realized they weren't taking advantage of one of the most profitable parts of their business, which was catering. And I said, well, what if we were to help you build your catering business? We realize you're just really busy. You do not have enough labor or resources to tackle catering because you're just trying to manage dine-in, dine-out, take-out, and all that kind of stuff. So let us do this. And so Futi today is a corporate catering concierge service where we partner with immigrant women minority-owned restaurants, and we help them book catering jobs at large corporate offices. 
while on the corporate side, we help them think about diversity and inclusion through the lens of food and beverage. When it comes to simply what we do, it's just we help companies like Warby Parker get amazing food in their office for 300 people. But when you think about our mission, it's we wanted to make sure that these corporations were thinking about where their food came from. They were thinking about their purchasing power and how they were using their purchasing power, right? Because that in itself is important, right? It's your duty to remember that where you spend your dollars matters, even as consumers. Absolutely. Like where we buy our makeup from, right? Like we look at who the founders are. We look at where they source their ingredients from and like how it's made. Is it a clean product? Is it ethical? And all of those things. So we're like, why aren't corporations doing this when they're feeding their teams or when they're hosting events or in meetings or whatever it so is? So smart. So smart. And you're right. And it's such a great additional way to think about diversity and inclusion in the form of food. Tell me about your I Made Your Food campaign. Yeah, so that's one of my favorite things because when we entered the corporate world, we kept seeing people come in for free food and then walking away. And I was like, the only person that knows that we're a mission-driven company and that the food is coming from, you know, a black or brown business or an immigrant-owned business is the office manager, right? Or the the CMO, whoever we were selling to. And I was like, I want to change that. I want people to interact and I want to humanize things. So we started taking photographs of the owners the chefs, the back of house, holding signs that said, I made your food. Love it. And we printed those photos and then we put them with the catered meals. And we saw a change. We saw a shift in how people were reacting to the food. They took a moment. It was almost like they were like, you know, like when you say prayer before food, like some people do. It was almost like as if they were doing that, right? They were taking a second to acknowledge someone. And how many times a day do you think about who prepped your meal? Like even when you're ordering takeout. We're so rushed to close the door when the delivery person comes. Like we don't even say, hey, how are you? And so that's what I wanted to change. And so the I Major Food campaign started off as, you know, a digital thing. We started doing it in person by printing the pictures. Then we started doing dinners um, where we had the chefs coming in and the chefs were, you know, hosting the dinners, but they were also cooking and prepping and they were also eating with them. And then they were storytelling, right? Not just like, oh, here's what I'm feeding you. Here's who I am. Here's where I come from. Here's why I do this. I love it. Here's why I feed you. Um, and here's why I continue to do this, right? Like the love of food. And so I always talk about how do we humanize food? How do we humanize this experience, right? And just be more mindful about like, you know, we're so careful about what we put in our bodies and why aren't we mindful of who puts it together and therefore we're putting it in our bodies. So that was really important for us is that how do we storytell at the same time? Um, so Warby Parker, for example, they were emailing the link to the interviews that we were conducting as well. And so all of their teams were reading this and like they're having discussions, right? And then they're going to go visit this restaurant as well and say like, oh yeah, I love this restaurant. Let's, you know, we get it in our office, but like it's actually in my neighborhood where I live and I'd love to just like experience it and get to know the owners as well. Um, and it's a sense of building community, right? What was most important to me is how do we build community? How do we make sure that people are paying attention to food, paying attention to the people and just like coming together around that? Because when we think about working, you know, in an office, which is very different today, we wanted to help build and be a part of that culture that they were building inside. I love that you took such a personal approach to it because you could very well have this business and have it be just like a micro seamless or a micro grub hub, mm -hmm. but it's really with a lot of heart and soul, which I think also creates loyalty when 
these companies have good experience with it and want to come back, which I think is always the goal. How would you say your experience has been with sort of mentors and who do you go to for advice and who has supported you throughout this journey that you've been on? And how do you also think about helping, you know, other people who are trying to build what you've already done? Yeah. I mean, for me, there's two things. So throughout this journey, I've realized that I needed to surround myself with other entrepreneurs, not just entrepreneurs, but also other black and brown women entrepreneurs, right? Because there were so many things that I was experiencing that I thought were my fault, right? I kept thinking like, why am I not getting venture funding? And I kept thinking it was because I'm not good enough. Like my business sucks or this sucks. And I was like, but I'm being written about in like major publications, not by accident, but because they think I'm good enough, right? I'm being put on lists among other incredible entrepreneurs. But even through all of that, none of that was validation for me. I kept thinking it was my fault. And then I kept talking to others and they're like, no, we're going through the same thing. I was being asked questions like, when are you planning on having kids? Right? Like I have a ring on my finger. So the assumption is I even want to have kids. Right. And then the assumption is that I am planning on having kids soon. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, first of all, it's very personal. I don't even talk to my friends about that because it's, you know, we can't make the assumption that every woman wants kids or every of parent course. wants kids, right? And what is that insinuating that when you do have kids, you're going to like ease up on the work ethic? Like no. what, what is? <laughs> no. And it's funny because I feel like if, if the investors I was talking to knew anything about parenting or if they understood it, is that like parenting for me, at least personally, and I've talked to other parents that have said similar things, it's made me a better entrepreneur. It's made me a better worker. It's made me a better leader because I think about things on very different levels. I also understand the complexities of people's lives, that people's lives aren't what they just seem, right? Because I woke up this morning and this morning was the first day of orientation for my kid's school. And he did not want to wear a shirt where he had to button it up. How old is he? He's four. And he wanted to just, yeah, of course, right? He just wanted to sit there with his shirt unbuttoned and his chest out. And I'm like, (laughs) how do I explain to you that this is inappropriate? And you can do this at the beach. You can do this at the pool. But you're not doing this in front of other classmates of yours because you dress up. And, you know, we're doing this at home. We're doing it remotely. And so, again, these are the little things that, like, you know, people forget that what my morning was like, you know, we want to see people as just what they are in front of us and not know that they have a, they have a life, right? They have other things that are influencing the way they feel, the way they react. And so for me, again, like finding other entrepreneurs that look like me, that come from similar places like me that are from New York or, you know, don't come from Ivy League backgrounds and and all those things were really important, right? So that was a good group of people that I always surrounded myself with. And then the next was people that didn't necessarily believe in me, that doubted me, critics, right? So you surrounded yourself with the critics? Not surrounded necessarily, but I always went to them for advice. I always went to them when we were trying to do something new. I always went to them because I knew that they weren't going to tell me that I'm the best. Right. When you surround yourself with people that are constantly telling you that you forget about the small things that, you know, right. You get blindsided. And, and I think that that was what I didn't want to do was like, forget that there's things that I could be doing wrong because I'm human. 
I make mistakes as a founder, as a leader, as a parent. Like, you know, when I first started, I didn't believe people could work from home. I thought that like everybody needed to be working as hard as I was, you know, 12 hours a day, they needed to show up. And, you know, as I got older, I was like, no, they don't need to be in the office all the time. I need to trust them. I need to trust that they can work from home. And, and that took me a couple of years. But I got there, right? It took me time. Or, or a pandemic, <laughs> whichever. <laughs> I know. Or a pandemic where you have no other choice. No, but it, you know what? You raise a great point. And, and certainly, you know, my background is fashion. I mean, working from home was not a thing. It was looked down upon. It was a stigma that got put. I My boss let me work from home after I had my first child. And I knew the CEO of the company was like, I had like a scarlet letter on my chest because there was some home time. So I totally get it. And I think, but that's a growth experience for you, right? Yeah. And that's part of the joy of, you know, evolving as a leader. What would you say is the best advice you've ever received as far as propelling your business forward? I don't know if this was necessarily advice or something I came up with. <laughs> I'm still unsure about it. But something we talked about earlier is not being attached to people, place or things, but being attached to a mission. and that has always helped me even through this period of COVID, right? Like our company has taken a huge hit and it was like, shit, what do I do next? And wh where does the company go next? We have no revenue. And instead of like freaking out, we said, well, what is our mission? Represent underrepresented communities. We want to help people that don't get access to capital, that don't have access to branding materials or resources, how do we help them right now? And so in the beginning of COVID, we started a fundraiser, we've raised $130,000 in which wow. we were, you know, we weren't going to use it as like a relief fund for restaurants. But we said, what we'll do is we'll take this money buy meals from the restaurant so they could keep open, take those meals and then deliver them to places that are in need the most, right? We saw that domestic violence was increasing. So we started going to shelters and we donated to survivors that were there because they couldn't cook their own food in the shelters because we still weren't very sure of how things were being passed, right? We were wearing masks, but we didn't know really what was happening because we didn't have enough information. And so we were looking at places that needed it the most. And so that's what we did. We spent our time doing that. And so it goes back to sticking to a mission as opposed to we're not serving food at a, an event or at a, you know, at a team meal that's okay. You just figure out what comes next for you, right? And so that's what I think is most important. And I take that really like hardcore in the sense that like, I'm thinking about, well, what comes next for me as an individual? What is my mission in life? And my mission is similar to what the mission of the company has been, which is um, communities that aren't sought after. How do I represent them? How do I look after them? And, you know, I looked at the district that I grew up in, not much has changed in 30 years. I mean, the community has changed, right? The people living here have changed, but the public school system is the same. Um, the people have changed as in like we, so many different kinds of communities represent this community, but we've never had somebody from those communities representing us, right? We've always had a white male. And how does that make sense, right? How do we change the way we're being seen, the way we're being talked about by representing ourselves? And so for me, that was really important and which is why I decided in the last few months that I want to go back into politics and I want to take my chance at running and representing for a community that I think needs it. And I think that that is what being driven to a mission as opposed to people, place or things comes into play. And, and really it is like 
how do we adapt that not just to our companies, but to ourselves as individuals? I think that is so incredibly exciting. And I really hope you win. When does that all start up? Like, when are you going to be? Uh, June 2021 is the Democratic primary. So that's what I'm working towards right now. And then the election is November 2021. And next year is a really big year because we're voting in a ton of new council members, a new mayor, and a lot of other really big positions that have a huge impact. So for anyone that's listening, local elections matter. Like yes. very much so. Can you just repeat that, please? Because people don't realize that. Yeah. I mean, local elections matter. I'll keep saying this because, you know, as much as the presidential election is huge, even bigger is the local elections because they make a huge impact on where the money goes, right? Filling out the census, for example. You know, we talk about like, what the city council has been voting on in the past few months, which has been like the budget for the police and where the money should go and how we should distribute it in different parts of the community. When we, we think about that, who's making the decision? Not the president of the United States, your city council member. So look up who your city council members are. Look up who your state assembly members are, your state senate members are, and not just your U.S. Senate, right? So I think it's really important that we understand how does local politics have a play in our communities? Like, when you're a parent and you're thinking about where the money is going for your public school, like that all matters because you need to know who's advocating for your community. It's Absolutely. not just the PTA, it's your local council people. So local elections matter. Um, wherever you are, please look up, you know, who your local uh, legislators are and get to know them. That is great advice. I feel like the word pivot became really trendy this yeah. time during the pandemic, right? But it's obvious that you have done these before. So how often do you sort of take stock in your business, in how you feel about it, how it's progressing before you say to yourself, okay, it's time to shift gears a little bit? Like, it sounds like to me, you're someone who is super analytical and always thinking about the reality of what the situation is and sort of the external factors that could be contributing to different trends that you're seeing. And maybe it's time to, like I said, shift gears. So tell us a little bit about how often you sort of rethink things. I mean, the way I've tried to tackle it is like every three to six months, look at where you are. So it's not about changing, but it's about reanalyzing the plan that you had set out, right? So every year, changing the way you approach sales, changing the way you approach your brand and what are the things that you're doing to build brand equity. And so I Major Food was kind of born out of that as well, right? Because we were kind of analyzing like, well, okay, we've been doing the same things. Like nothing is changing about our business. We're on the same trajectory. Yes, we're going to grow and we'll have, you know, X percent increase in our revenue next year. But like, what's changing, right? Are we changing culture? Are we changing habits? Are we um, getting companies to be more aware? And I didn't see that happening, right? I mean, like you had said originally, like I could have created a micro seamless or grub up through catering and like just make it an online ordering platform where everybody just orders catering. But that's not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. I wanted like a shift in culture and we could have been in 10 cities, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted to really build a shift in the way people think about food, the way we honor the people in food and, you know, show up and appreciate them. And so that's where I made your food was really important for us. And, and that's something we try to do every three to six months. You know, we set our kind of OKRs and we, we make sure that we're keeping up with them. And then we take a huge stock in talking to our customers. 
And our customers are both restaurants and companies that are ordering through us. So talking to them on a regular basis is really important. If they don't see value in us, then they will stop working with us, right? Of course. And so constantly talking to them about like what it is that they want. And we started doing that by building community, right? So we started reaching out to brands like Diane von Furstenberg, people that I love that I knew cared about the community. And so actually last November, we held an event with them where we had in their store, four of our women-owned businesses. Um, We invited 50 guests where there was food being passed out, but then we did a storytelling event, right? So in-person experiences, we realized people love them. And it's a great way for our customers on all ends, whether it's the restaurants or the companies to meet each other and see each other not as just like, oh, you're servicing us by like providing us food, but like we're humans, let's build deeper connections. And so for us, community was really big. And so that's why it was so hard this year. You know, we had slated to do like 10 in-person dinners for I Major Food to do this storytelling experience and all of that was scrapped. And so that's yeah. where we're, we're trying to do it virtually. And obviously the experience is nowhere near the same, but we're still driven by the mission of how do we make sure we storytell? How do we empower people that aren't just the David Changs or the Padma Lakshmi's of the world, but you know the mom and pop owners whose stories, again, didn't get heard till the pandemic. And when they're being told in the pandemic, they're being told in the saddest light because they're shutting down and they're closing shop and it's not enlightening their backgrounds and their stories. So that's what we wanted to do, to tell them in the most positive ways and not like, oh, this restaurant is shutting down. Let's start a GoFundMe page, right? Like, let's talk about them when they're at their peak. That's what we were trying to do. And so even now we're trying to continue doing that while these restaurants are surviving, let's still put them in front of people at these corporate offices and host these virtual dinners and and things like that. Because again, people forget that restaurants are a huge part of our communities, not just because they provide us food, but because they provide us like a safe haven to like celebrate and acknowledge each other and things like that are really, really important. I totally agree. And I think obviously now by not being in restaurants, you really do realize how much a part of your life they are, especially in New York. I feel like New Yorkers love their food. Oh, yeah. (laughs) As far as your mentality when you get pushback or you have a huge obstacle in front of you, how do you mentally prepare to tackle something? Like, do you have any tricks of the trade for how you face issues that pop up? So there's no, (laughs) I always like think about this because I I mean, the immediate reaction is always freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Not so productive. (laughs) Yeah, not so productive. I mean, we're human, we freak out. I mean, like, one of the best things that I like to do is collect my failures, right? Collect them, journal them, write about them. And then kind of like go back to like, did I experience this before? Did I go through this? How do I take those past experiences and then relate them to what I'm going through now? And then create a plan to move forward from here. That's so interesting. Wow. That book must be not great reading (laughs) (laughs) to reflect on all your failures. But that's really smart though, because if you solved it in the past, then you could probably apply that to what's happening currently. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's keeping a journal, right? I mean, it's something so similar to like, we forget what it's like to experience something because Mm -hmm. we're human and we just move really quickly forward, right? Just think about motherhood. I very vividly remember what it was like breastfeeding and how much I hated it and like the breast pumping in the office. Like I would be sitting at my desk sometimes because I didn't have enough time to go into the pump room. So I had to sit at my desk and do it. Like all these little, little things. 
And a lot of the times when you see somebody else experience, you're like, just get over it, right? Like you can just do this. I went through it. I survived. We forget that we have to be compassionate, right? We have to be empathetic and we have to understand like they're going through something that's so hard. So let's give them a minute to like break down whatever they need at that moment and let them come back, right? So I think that sometimes even as women, we forget the experiences that we went through of birthing and we're like, yeah, it, it was fine. It was okay. You'll get over it. Like, and we quickly say those things when we should really be saying, take your time. Don't worry. I'm here for you. Take an hour of, you know, and like the little, little things. So I think for failures, for me, part of it is like journaling, going back, remembering those experiences because we forget too often. And that's why I do it is just mm-hmm. to be able to say, oh, wow, I did experience this and this sucked. And how did I have this conversation? Like the first time I had to fire someone, right? That was tough. You know, I didn't want to tell them, but they weren't meeting their requirements of like what they needed to do at the job. And that was frustrating because this person was, they were great human, but they were becoming toxic for the culture because Mm -hmm. other people were expected to do things as much as they were, but they weren't performing and they felt like they were being favored. And so you have to know to like remember these things. And so because I forget and I'm human, so I try to write them. And you're busy. So of course... You have been quoted as saying you shouldn't wait to start your business. Yeah. Why? I think because we're, I mean, this just goes back to, we're always being told to wait our turn on something, right? We are always waiting for all the, the, everything to be in the right place, everything to be at the right place at the right time, the perfect moment. And I think like there is no perfect moment, right? Even me running for office I know that there's going to be a number of people that think that I should have done more and the political landscape in order to run and that I haven't had enough of a background. But if I keep waiting for things, my turn will never come. And so I think it's similar to starting a business that you have to just put something out there. It might be dirty. It might not be the best version, but you need to put it out there in order for you to actually see what needs to be fixed, what needs to be perfected and what you need to go further down, right? Like what route do you need to actually keep pursuing? If you kind of create the perfect business plan and then everything falls apart, you're more likely to not continue because you're like, all right, I guess I put everything together. It was perfect and then it didn't work out. So for me, it's like, just get that MVP, that minimal viable product, whether it's you're running for office, like get your best version out there and then keep iterating, keep building because people want to see authenticity, right? Whether it's a brand or a person, people want to see who you are and that you actually care and that you're experiencing something. So I think that that for me is really important that if you have an idea, put it out there. But before you do that, 100% do your research, right? Like talk to your customers. Don't just think that there's a problem you need to solve and go solve it. And then you find out that it didn't exist for anybody (laughs) else but you. So when I do say that, I always preface it with make sure you talk to your customers, make sure you do your research. Like, you know, similar to me, I could have just started the business, but I talked to the business owners and then I was able to actually understand them and understand what they needed versus what I thought they needed. That's great advice, DT. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark, which now is going to be a very complicated question for you because you're diving into this political arena. Yeah. I mean, for me, I want to leave my mark on this world by leaving some sort of legacy of making sure that I've done everything in my power to take advantage of all of my labels as a human, my privilege, right? Like as a woman, as a woman of color, as a first-gen American, um, as a mother, as an entrepreneur, to push the status quo, 
right? To make sure that I wasn't just letting things be and that I pushed the status quo so that I've created a better world for the next generation or for just my generation to live in. And I've always wanted to keep doing that because I always told myself like, I wasn't put on this world to be normal, right? Like I, I, you know, not the nine to five. Um, I'm just like not happy sitting still. And so like, that's just who I am. And I want to make sure that like, that's how I leave my mark that people are like, oh my God, she did everything she possibly could in her power to make sure that her community was the best that it could be, right? That she was always trying to add value. She was always trying to provide in some way or shape or form, right? Whether it's by starting a company or a nonprofit or organizing people, or it's by running for office. And, you know, I hope that I'm able to, you know, kind of drive others to do the same. I love it. Tell everyone where they can find food to eat. Is it just food to eat.com? Yep. We're just at food to eat.com and I'm at deep NYC on all social channels. You're so lucky that you got the same handle on every social channel. Must be nice. (laughs) I had to switch it up because I was just like, I was sticking to one thing and I couldn't get what I really wanted. So I'm like, Deep NYC, it's like perfect. It's my name and where I'm from. And yeah, you know, it explains who I am. It really does. Deep this was awesome. Thank you so much. I love what you're doing. I think you have such passion for your work and it shows. And I can't wait. I mean, I, I really hope you win and I'll be rooting for you. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at alizalickxo or reach out on Twitter at alizalick. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.